0: Section 25 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rolt-Wheeler. Botany. Chapter 5. Development of Morphology, Part 2. Soon after Schleden first stirred the scientific world, a man of a very different character of mind began to address himself to the great task. This was Karl Nigeli, whose researches, from this time onward, laid the foundations of knowledge in every department of botany. Like others, he felt the necessity of first determining his position with respect to the philosophical principles of the investigation of nature but he did not proceed to give a general exposition of the inductive method as opposed to the dogmatism of the idealistic school. He went straight to the application of the laws of induction to the most general problems of organic nature and specially of vegetation. It is easy to say, remarks von Sachs, treating of his work, that the task of natural science is simply to deduce conceptions and laws from the facts of experience by aid of exact observation. Many considerations present themselves as soon as the attempt is made to satisfy this demand, for it is not enough merely to accumulate individual facts. The point to which the inductive inquiry is to lead must be kept constantly and clearly before the mind. Nigeli insisted that it is only in this way that facts and observations have any scientific value, that the one important thing is to make every single conception obtained by induction find its place in the scheme of all the rest of our knowledge. Since in nature everything is in movement, and every phenomenon is transitory, presenting itself to us in organic life, especially as the history of development, All due regard must be paid to this condition of constant motility in forming scientific conceptions. The history of development is not merely to be treated generally as one of various means of investigation, but as identical with investigation into organic nature. Nigeli set himself in earnest to meet the demands of inductive inquiry, such as he had himself described them. Moreover, he connected his own morphological investigations, as far as possible, with the lower cryptogams, extending them afterward to the higher cryptogams and to the phanerogams. That is, he proceeded from simple and plain facts to the more difficult, thus not only introducing the cryptogams into the field of systematic investigation, but making them its starting point. In this way, morphology not only secured a foundation in exact historical development, but it assumed a different aspect, inasmuch as the morphological ideas hitherto drawn from the phenerograms were now examined by the light of the history of development in the cryptogams. This was one innovation. The second, closely connected with it, was the way in which Negelli made the new doctrine of the cell the starting point of morphology. Both the first commencement of organs and their further growth were carried back to the formation of the separate cells, and the remarkable result was to show that in the cryptograms especially, whose growth is intimately connected with cell division, precise conformity to law obtains in the succession and direction of the dividing walls, and that the origin and further growth of every organ is effected by cells of an absolutely fixed derivation. The most remarkable thing was that every stem and branch, every leaf or other organ, has a single cell at its apex, and that all succeeding cells are formed by division of this one cell according to fixed laws, so that the origin of all cell tissue can be traced back to an apical cell. While important fragments as to their life histories and structures were described, they had little connected scientific values. Save, perhaps, the discovery that the fertilization in certain cryptogams, as in animals, was effected by spermatozoids. As to the flowering plants, the true function of the pollen tube and of the development of the embryo was not at all understood. This important question was set at rest by Wilhelm Hofmeister. He showed that the egg cell is formed in the embryo sac before fertilization, and that it is this which is excited to further development by the appearance of the pollen tube, and produces the embryo. Hoffmeister had observed the organization of the ovule, the nature of the embryo sac, and of the pollen grain, and the formation of the embryo from the fertilized egg cell, step by step, and cell by cell, and his account of these processes was aided by the light which Nigelli's theory of the cell, and his reference of all processes of development to the processes of cell formation, had thrown upon the history of development. He went on to apply the same method to the study of the embryology of the mosses and the vascular cryptogams, and followed the development of the sexual organs cell by cell in a large number of species. The intimate connection between such different organisms as the livevorts, the mosses, the ferns, the horsetails, the club mosses, the conifers, the monocotyledons, and dicotyledons could now be surveyed in all its relations with a distinctness never before attained. Alternation of generations, lately shown to exist though in quite different forms in the animal kingdom, was proved to be the highest law of development and to reign according to a simple scheme throughout the whole long series of these extremely different plants. It appeared most clearly in the ferns and mosses, though at the same time with a certain difference in each. In the ferns and allied cryptogams, a small and conspicuous body grows out of the asexually produced spore, and immediately produces the sexual organs. From the fertilization of these organs proceeds the root-bearing and leafy stem of the fern, which in its turn again produces only asexual spores. In the mosses, on the other hand, a much differentiated and usually long-lived plant is developed from the spore, and this plant proceeds again after some time to form sexual organs, the product of which is the so-called moss plant. The first generation that arose from the spore, the sexual, is in the moss, the vegetative plant, while in the ferns and their allies, the whole fullness of vital activity and of morphological differentiation is unfolded in the second generation, which is asexually produced. Here, all was at once clear and obvious, but Hofmeister's researches also showed that the same scheme of development holds good in the rhizocarps and Selaginelli, where two kinds of spores are formed, and it appeared plainly from their case that the recognition of the true relation between the production of spores and sexual organs is the guide to the morphological interpretation. When the processes in the large female spore of the most perfect of the cryptogams was known, the formation of the seeds in the conifers was at once understood. The embryo sac in these answered to this large spore, while the endosperm represented the prothallium, and the pollen grain the microspore. The last trace of alternation of generations so obvious in the ferns and mosses was seen in the formation of the seed in the phanerogams. The changes which the alternation of generations passes through from the mosses upward to the phanerogams were, if possible, still more surprising than the alternation of generations itself. The reader of Hofmeister's Vergleichende Untersuchungen was presented with a picture of genetic affinity between cryptogams and phanerogams, which could not be reconciled with the then reigning belief in the constancy of species. He was invited to recognize a connection of development which made the most different things appear to be closely united together the simplest moss, with palms, conifers, and angiospermous trees, and which was incompatible with a theory of original types. The assumption that every natural group represents an idea was here quite out of place. The notion entertained, up to that time, of what was really meant by the natural system had to be entirely altered. It could as little pass for a body of platonic ideas as for a mere framework of conceptions. But the effect of the work was great in respect to the system also. The cryptogams were now the most important objects in the study of morphology. The mosses were the standard by which the lower cryptogams must be tried. The ferns were the measure for the phanerogams. Embryology was the thread which guided the observer through the labyrinth of comparative and genetic morphology. Metamorphosis now received its true meaning when every organ could be referred back to its parent form, the staminal and capillary leaves of the phanerogams, for example, to the spore-bearing leaves of the vascular cryptogams, that which Haeckel, after the appearance of Darwin's book, called the phylogenetic method, Hoffmeister had long before actually carried out, and with magnificent success. When Darwin's theory was given to the world eight years after Hoffmeister's investigations, the relations of affinity between the great divisions of the vegetable kingdom were so well established and so patent that the theory of descent had only to accept what genetic morphology had actually brought to view. But the algae, fungi, and lichens presented a chaotic mass of obscure forms in contrast with the well-ordered knowledge of the mosses and vascular plants. There was a difficulty in drawing the boundary line between the lower animals and plants. The difficulty was solved by classing all objects capable of independent movement with animals. Thus, whole families of algae were claimed by the zoologists and when the swarm spores of a genuine alga were seen for the first time in the act of escaping the phenomenon was described as the changing of the plant into an animal such was the condition of affairs with respect to the algae about the year 1850 when hofmeister made the formation of the embryo in the phanerogams the vascular cryptogams and the mosses the central point of investigation in morphology and systematic botany. He made it clear that a perfect insight into the whole cycle of development in the plant and into its affinities can only be obtained in making its sexual propagation, the first commencement of the embryo, the starting point of the investigation. It was natural to expect, as happy results from the embryology of the algae as had been obtained in the case of the higher plants. It was important, therefore, that the observer should no longer rest satisfied with a knowledge of the sexual multiplication of the algae. He must inquire into their asexual propagation, and by its aid discover the complete history of their development. Former observations suggested the probability that here too, sexual propagation is the prevailing rule. A splendid result appeared in 1853 in Tourette's account of the fertilization of the genus fucus. This was a simple process as a matter of embryology. But the sexual act was so clear, and even open to experimental treatment that it threw light at once upon other cases more difficult to observe. Then followed discoveries by different workers of sexual processes in rapid succession, Pringsheim, however, was not content with carefully observing the sexual act. He gave detailed descriptions of growth in the same families, in its progress, cell by cell, of the formation of the sexual organs and the development of the sexual product. The asexual propagations, which are intercalated into the vegetation and embryology, were shown in their true connection. Processes were recognized, which often recalled the alternation of generations in the Mucinae. It was shown that very different forms of sexuality and of general development occur in the algae, and these led to the formation of systematic groups, quite different from those founded on the superficial observation of collectors. From the confused mass of forms not before understood, Pringsheim brought out a series of characteristic groups which... Thoroughly examined and skillfully described in words and by figures, stood out as islands in the chaotic sea of still unexamined forms and threw light in many ways on all around them. The algae offer at present a great variety in the processes of development than any other class of plants. Sexual and asexual propagation and growth work one into the other in a way which opens entirely new glimpses into the nature of the vegetable world. Some useful observations also had been accumulating for some time on the fungi. As early as 1729, P. A. Michele, 1679 to 1737 had collected the spores of numerous fungi, had sown them, and obtained not only mycelia, but also sporophores fructifications yet rudolfi and link at the beginning of the last century ventured to deny the germination of the spores of fungi persoon in 1818 thought that some fungi grew from spores others from spontaneous generation the study of the lower fungi presented many difficulties but by the method of carefully working out complete life histories, or at least attempting to do so, progress was being made. To the brothers Tulasny belongs the credit of first breaking ground in this direction. But mycology owes its present form to none more than to Anton de Barry, with a correct understanding of the only means which can lead to sure results in this difficult branch of study, de Barry made it his first endeavor to perfect the methods of observation, and not only sought for the stages of development of the lower fungi in their natural places of growth, but cultivated them himself with all possible precautions, and thus obtained complete and uninterrupted series of developments. By these means, he succeeded in proving that parasitic fungi make their way into the inside of healthy plants and animals, and that this is the explanation of the remarkable fact that fungi live in the apparently uninjured tissue of other organisms, a fact which formerly had led to the supposition that such fungi owe their origin to spontaneous generation, or to the living contents of the cells of their entertainers. Pringsheim had already observed these occurrences in 1858 in the case of an unusually simple water fungus, Pythium. De Barry showed that the intrusive parasite vegetates inside the plant or animal which is its host, and afterward sends out its organs of propagation into the open air, and that at a given time the organism attacked by the fungus sickens or dies. These investigations were not only of high scientific interest to the biologist, but they produced a series of results of the greatest importance to agriculture and forestry and even to medicine. With the fungi, even more than the algae, the chief difficulty in making out a complete series of developments in the history of each species arose from the frequent intercalation of the asexual mode of multiplication into the course of its development and in the further peculiarity that the several stages of development in some cases could only be completed on different substrata. One of the most important tasks was to find the sexual organs, the existence of which was rendered probable by various analogies. And after DeBerry had observed the sexual organs in the in 1861. He succeeded in 1863 in proving for the first time that the whole fruit body of an ascomycete is itself the product of the sexual act which takes place on the threads of the mycelium. But the most important result remains to be told. It is that the two classes of algae and fungi, hitherto kept strictly separate, must obviously be now united, and an entirely new classification adopted in which algae and fungi recur as forms differing only in habit in various divisions founded on their own morphology. A few words must be given here to Lesians. They are the division of the thallophytes, whose true nature was last recognized, and that only in modern times. Till after 1850, scarcely more was known of their organization than Walroth had discovered in 1825, namely that green cells known as gonidia are scattered through the fungus-like hyphal tissue of the thallus. After Mohl's investigation in 1833, it was known that free spores were formed in the tubes of the fructification's apothecia, and that a dust collected from the thallus and consisting of a mixture of gonidia and hyphae was in a condition to propagate the species. The genetic relation between the chlorophyll-containing gonidia and the fungus-like hyphae long continued to be obscure, till at last, after 1868, it was shown that the gonidia are true algae, and the hyphal tissue a genuine fungus, and that therefore the lesions are not a class coordinating with the algae and fungi, but a division of ascomycetes, which have this peculiarity that they spin their threads round the plants on which they feed and take them up in their tissue. End of chapter 5. End of section 25.